Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that wonderful prayer of supplication. And aren't you glad that in a world that is increasingly chaotic and dangerous and dark and volatile and violent, that we have a God who is absolutely sovereign, all-powerful, accessible, and He hears our prayers, and He answers our prayers, and He's always there for us. Isn't that a wonderful reality to live with as God's people? Praise the Lord. A, week, well, a couple of weeks from today, I, I will, I'm looking forward to beginning a series of messages that will be taken from the book of Psalms that I will simply entitle Life Lessons from Psalms. I had fully intended, or so I thought, that I would begin that series this morning. But you know, God had a different reason and a different idea, a different plan, and, and, and He made it quite clear to me in my study as I was poured over the Psalms that, that there was a message He wanted to use uh, as a springboard for that series. Actually, an evangelistic message. And so, you know, when God speaks, I try to listen. Kind of like that old um, uh, E.F. Hutton commercial. <laughs> When God speaks, I, don't, I, I try not to argue with Him because He knows best. Father knows best, right? And amen. And so I want to bring a message this morning that will be taken from the book of Philippians, Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. And I encourage you, if you will, to go ahead and turn in your, book, in your Bibles to chapter 2 of Philippians. We'll be looking primarily at chapter 2, verses 12, uh, verses 12 through 18. <clears throat> and, you know, it's interesting... Paul begins verse 12 with therefore. And I always tell you, when you see therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? It's speaking and pointing back to something previous in the text. And, and so, uh, you know, I was trying to be a dutiful student of the Word, and so I, I look back to the beginning of chapter 2, and there's another therefore. So it's kind of like one therefore pointing back to another therefore. You know, at the beginning of the book, you know, in chapter 1, Paul is writing this wonderful letter filled with his love and adoration and appreciation to a church that he loved so dearly, the church of Philippi, that has stood by him and prayed for him and ministered to him and encouraged him and supported him. And he's telling them how much they mean to him and how he's prayed for them. And, and then also he's talking to them, you know, about the message of the gospel and the importance of preaching Christ and how he's been faithful to do that. But even though as he's been doing that, he's suffered persecution as a result of that, but he hopes that, that, that his persecution would, would actually be a benefit to the, the Christians and that they would, they would learn that in suffering you can still see the glory of God and, and be, be, uh, bring glory to God as well. And, and, and so chapter 2 begins by pointing back to that. Therefore, chapter 1. And, and so through, through the beginning of chapter 2, as Paul is, is talking about the importance, he's encouraging the church at Philippi and, and you and me, Christians today, to exercise a spirit of humility because through genuine humility, and you know it's like an old country song. I'm not a big country western song uh, a, a fan, but I remember a song that said, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Now, I ain't perfect, so therefore I can be humble. But anyway, we all can use a good dose of humility. And, and, and so he's using this, this chapter 2 to encourage the church. This is how you relate to one another within the body of Christ. You don't go around with your nose up in the air and as if you're better than the next person or you you know looking down on fellow Christians. No, you, you, you exercise genuine humility and you always look to the needs of others before you look to yourself. And Paul said, this is the, this is the atmosphere 
that should, should uh, to describe the, the, the church, the congregation of believers. And, and I say to Cornerstone, uh, you know, that's, that's the atmosphere, the spiritual atmosphere that should prevail here. We'll find true unity as a body of Christ when we are humble towards one another. And then in, he goes on in verse 5 on to verse 11 and he gives the perfect example of humility. Who better than in all of, of the world, who in all of history better exemplified true humility than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who chose to come down to this earth, setting aside glory and the splendor of heaven to take on humanity and to suffer a terrible death death of a, of a criminal on a cross. Folks, you don't get any more humble than that. So Paul is beginning in verse 12. He's saying, therefore. Therefore what? Therefore, realizing the importance of being humble towards one another and striving towards unity in the body and using Christ as our ultimate example of humility, Paul proceeds to share what he's going to do here in talking about what it means to be true followers of Christ. To be light bearers in a dark world. Folks, our world is increasingly getting darker and darker. I'm talking spiritually, morally. And you know that as well as I do. If ever there's a time for the light of the, of the gospel of, of Christ to shine through the church, we need that light today. Desperately. Desperately. So, I want to preface the message this morning. First of all, with an ominous warning to superficial believers, or as they say in the language of today, posers, people who pose as Christians, or, or Christian wannabes, people who are Christian in name only. Listen, hear this warning. There are many, many people sitting in church pews across this nation today who in actuality are lost unsaved and unregenerate and barring the divine intervention work of God on their way to hell. Listen, folks, it's time that we take into consideration the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 where he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Listen, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal life and heaven, Oh my goodness, you don't want to take any chances. You want to know that you know that you know that you belong to the Lord. And as we were singing that beautiful song, now I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me. Do you? Really? Actually? Jesus gives some warnings. In Matthew chapter 7, 13, He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. Folks, there are a whole lot more, a whole lot more people dying and going to hell than there are going to heaven. I know in America what we think we are, quote, Christian nation and the gospel is preached on every corner and we got people like Billy Graham and, 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 and others who are proclaiming the gospel and the, the word is all over the country. People somehow assume in America, oh, we're all somehow going to go to heaven because we're such a good nation and have such a good history and heritage. No, that's not the case. Jesus foretold this centuries ago. 
the vast majority of the people will not find the narrow gate. They will not find eternal life. They're on that broad way, the easy way that everybody's on. Come on, get on board. doesn't matter what you really believe. Everybody's faith is going to somehow take them to heaven. And, and they find themselves headed towards ultimate eternal destruction. Jesus warned us. He also said in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus understood there would be a lot of people who would say to him, Lord, Lord, thinking in their minds that they're okay with God and their home for eternity is heaven. And Jesus says, not so. Not so. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he echoes those same words of warning when he says there, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I tell you to do, the things that I say? Why do you say Lord, Lord, and you continue to engage in sexual immorality and in gossip and carrying an unforgiving spirit and, and cheating? Why do you say to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, when you continue to steal and lie and engage in immorality? Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, when you continue to allow yourself to be addicted to pornography and alcohol and drugs and you speak with vulgarity? Jesus says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, when you do these despicable, sinful things? Do you believe that you belong to Jesus Christ? No. Do you know that you belong to Jesus Christ? Do you know that you know that you know that if you died today, and how tragic the story that Pastor Tim related to us of that young, vibrant, full of life, godly, Christian servant whose life in an instant unjustly snuffed out stepped into eternity having no idea that morning when she got up that would be her last day on the face of the earth. Let me tell you something. You may be making plans for the future and I hope you have a long and a prosperous and a fruitful future. But understand, this could be the last day on earth for you. Where will you spend eternity Eternity is too long. Hell is too real. The judgment of God is too awful that you would dare to take chances with something like that. So I want to preach this message and it's a simple message. It's not a very deep theological message. In fact, I've entitled it The ABCs of the Gospel. A. We must admit your utter helplessness as a sinner. That's the beginning point for every person who will find themselves as a part of the family of God. We must admit our sinfulness. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, not one, not one. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care what a wonderful track record you have of charitable acts out there in the community. I don't care how many people pat you on the back and say, oh, what a good person you are. The Bible says there's none righteous. There's none, not one person qualified to step into heaven on their own. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Every lost person must come to an Isaiah experience. In Isaiah chapter 6, you remember the prophet Isaiah was in the temple and he had that great vision where the temple was filled up with the glory of God. He saw the Lord God Almighty sitting high and lifted up on that throne of justice and power and dominion. And the seraphim on each side were saying, Holy, 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 holy. And Isaiah suddenly realized and came to the admission of his own sin when he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Let me tell you something, dear friend. If you've got unclean lips, as as Isaiah did, you've got an unclean heart. If you're speaking filthy words and telling nasty jokes and and, and ramming off with gossip and all, listen, there's something, something wrong with your heart. An unclean lips, unclean lips betrays an unclean heart. Unclean hands betray an unclean heart. Unclean eyes that look at things that they have no business gazing upon betray an unclean heart. Unclean ears that listen regularly to things that are uh, an offense to holy God betray an unclean heart. Maybe you need to have an Isaiah experience today to say before the holiness of God, Oh, woe is me. I have unclean lips. Every lost person, every lost person, no exception, must come to the point of confessing their sinfulness, admitting that they are sinners. And then also, we must admit our predicament, our awful predicament. Because, dear friend, if you're lost and you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in a fix. You are in a terrible predicament. How do you say that, preacher? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the penalty of sin is eternal separation from God. Forever! Separated from the love of God. Separated from the mercy of God. Separated from the grace of God. Forever and ever and ever. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our predicament tells us, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, he he lays it out there. He says, And you who were alienated, who were once alienated and enemies of God in your mind by wicked works, do you understand the, the awfulness of your predicament if you don't have Jesus Christ residing in your heart as your Lord and Savior? It's like having a laser guided missile, the white hot wrath of God is targeting you and there's nobody that can save you. You can't do anything to escape it on your own. Oh, that's a terrible predicament to be in. To see the laser of God's wrathful eyes pointed at your life and know that one day if you slip into eternity without Jesus Christ, you will face the eternal wrath of God on all of your sins forever and ever and ever and ever. In Revelation chapter 20, John in that great vision describes that great throne of judgment on which Jesus Christ the Son of God will set on judgment of every person that has ever lived on the face of the earth. And in that terrible day of judgment, it tells us then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, verse 14 and 15. This is the second death. Listen, nobody enjoys the thought of dying. Nobody looks forward to dying. But let me tell you something. The first death When you just cease to breathe, your heart stops beating and brain waves cease. Listen, the first death is a picnic. It's a walk in the park, ladies and gentlemen, to the eternal second death that John is speaking of. 
Because that's the death of your soul for eternity and eternity and eternity. This is the second death, John says, and anyone not found written in the book of life, that would be those who are lost and separated from God. He says those who are not, who are not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. You know, it's amazing. Some of our liberal churches and liberal pastors, God bless their heart. They're going to have to stand in judgment before God and give account for watering down the Word of God and falsifying the truth of the Word of God. And they'll try to tell you, oh, listen, this thing about hell is just figurative. There's no such thing as a devil. There's really no place of hell. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice I didn't say some theologian. Notice I didn't say one of the apostles. Do you understand? I'm talking about the very Son of God, the eternal Sovereign, all-knowing Son of God said more about hell than He said about heaven. In Jesus' apocalyptic parables in chapter 25 of, verse, of, of, of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, just listen to what Jesus, how He described what awaits the soul that has rejected Christ and faces eternity without Jesus. Jesus is talking about in the parable of the talents, the unfaithful servant, if you would, the unprofitable servant, he says, he will be cast into the outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, I don't know about you. I've had some pain before. I don't know if you've had to deal with excruciating pain that sets your teeth on edge where your teeth, you just grind your teeth because you're in such agony and pain. There's no relief. Listen, that's hell. Jesus says there in the darkness of hell there will be intense pain such that the teeth will be gnashing and grinding and there will be immense weeping in that same chapter. Verse 21, Jesus went on to say, Then he will say to those on the left hand, that is those who are lost, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He goes on in verse 46, Matthew 25, and said, These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Listen, dear friend, the first thing that a lost person needs to do, the first step towards coming to Christ and experiencing salvation is admit. Admit your sinfulness. Admit the terribleness of your predicament. And that moves us to the next step, the B in this message, and that is to believe. To believe. Believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I must believe that Jesus is who the Bible says He is. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? We know that, that the most popular verse, I think, in the Bible. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son not some prophet, not some teacher, not some religious leader, but God sent His only, one and only begotten Son that whosoever believes upon Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who is Jesus? He's not just some teacher as the Jews and the Jehovah Witnesses would have you to believe. Listen, He's more than just a prophet as the Muslims might have you to believe. Listen, He's more than a social reformer as Gandhi and that crew would have you to believe. He's more than just a martyr as some liberal historians or historical revisionists would have you to believe. He's more than that. He's the Son of God. And until you come to put your full trust and faith in that reality, you're not on your way 
Jesus, you may recall, was quizzing his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16. He asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? You remember the response of the apostle Peter right off the bat. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My father who's in heaven told you that. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul wanted to make sure that the followers of Christ in that church at Colossae understood that Jesus Christ was indeed God. He said, For in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that all the attributes of God that are in the Father were in the Son. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You must believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that He is, and then you must believe in what Jesus did. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Listen, the, you remember when we were going through the book of uh, Acts and Peter standing up that day filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching that message at Pentecost there before the Jews, many of them that participated in crucifying Christ, the Jewish leaders all gathered together. You remember Peter was preaching to that crowd predominantly of Jews and he said very pointedly, he said, this same Jesus whom you have crucified, God has raised from the dead. And not only that, he has exalted him and lifted him up to be Lord and Christ. That's what Jesus did. He died for our sins. He was raised the third day in the power of the glory of God as the first fruit of the resurrection. And because He lives, we live. Amen? Because he was, res- he was resurrected from that grave, dear friend, there's no grave that will hold a born-again believer, Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, John says, In this, love was, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. In other words, Jesus would satisfy the just requirements of the wrath of God towards your sins and my sins. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. In Romans in chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, In this the love of God is demonstrated towards us in that while we were sinners... He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to get cleaned up spiritually or religiously. Let me tell you something... In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. You must believe Jesus is who the Bible says that He is. You must believe that Jesus did what the Bible said He did. And He died for the sins of all mankind who would put their trust and faith in Him. And He was resurrected in the power and the glory of God. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, even now interceding on your behalf and my behalf. And ladies and gentlemen, I believe with all my heart, Jesus is coming again. He's coming back to this earth and He's going to vindicate sin and eradicate all all forms of evil from the world. He will reign for a thousand years. We will be with Him in the power and the glory that He will exhibit. I believe that with all my heart. So must you. Which brings us to the sea of the message and gets to our text in Philippians in chapter 2. Commit. Commit. You see, there are far too many people in churches out there that are promoting a type of salvation that misses the point. There are far too many churches that are promoting salvation almost as if it were some form of a measles shot. You get, you get it one time 
It's a thing of the past. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. In other words, salvation has been propped up as if all you have to do is have some experience. It can be some emotional experience and some, some highly charged service. Or maybe you, you raised your hand or maybe you signed a card and then boom, I'm saved. Hallelujah. I go on and live my life like I want to. I'm going to heaven. That sounds good. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not biblical. It's not according to the Word of God. This is what Paul is getting to as he's writing to the Christians there at Philippi and wanting them to understand that we must commit first to repent of our sins and then we must follow Jesus daily as the Lord of our life, working out our salvation daily with fear and trembling. And I ask you right now, is that the pattern of your life? Are you working out your salvation? And have you been working out your salvation from the day you made a profession of faith? You chose to, to admit your sins and, and to uh, believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 23, He says, If any man come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't say, if any person wants to be saved, just let them make some kind of a commitment, sign a card, or get their name on the church roll, and then they go on and live their life like they want to. Oh no, that's not what biblical Christianity is, ladies and gentlemen. It's a daily walk following after Jesus Christ. Working out our salvation, living out our salvation daily. Jesus says, in John chapter 14, verse 21, He says, He who has My commandments and keeps them, He is the one who loves Me. You've heard Me preach that before. You've heard Me make reference to that. You can say with all your heart and sing with all exuberance about how much you love the Lord, but let me tell you something. If you are living continually in disobedience to the teachings of the Scriptures and the Word of God, you don't love Jesus. There is no love in your heart for the Lord if you're living a life of rebellion against Lord, uh, Lord Jesus Christ on a regular basis. And you have every right to question your salvation. You have every reason to fear death and eternity separated from God. The modern church with its unbiblical message of easy believism, I believe is responsible for multitudes of souls going to hell because they've been given false security. I pray that's not you. I pray. We must first commit to actively demonstrate our love for the Lord. God's people in the Old Testament, under the old covenant of the law, when they were in, in fellowship with God and when they were being obedient, let me tell you something, they actively demonstrated their love for God. They lived out their faith through worshiping, through obeying His law, Conquering when He said to conquer. Building when He said to build. Glorifying God. Listen, the, the Old Testament saints didn't live a life of passive faith. Their faith was put into action on a regular basis. You knew they were the people of God by how they talked and how, what they did and the priorities they set and the, and the way that they were set apart from the rest of the world and the way that they pointed the world towards Jehovah God. That's what made them the people of God. It was an active, dynamic faith. Why should ours be any less? And so Paul is saying here, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul says, look, it's a great thing that you were so obedient when I was there. But the fact is, it's greater that you're more obedient now. Because you're not just being obedient to me. Paul says, more importantly, when I'm gone, you're obeying Christ. And so should we. We should live lives every day accountable to the Lord and obedient to the Lord. And that's what Paul is calling the Christians. He says, that, he says but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. First of all, footnote, Paul is not suggesting in the least that you work for your salvation. Because we know that that's not what the Bible teaches. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And not by works. So Paul's not saying you work for your salvation. He's not even saying you work at your salvation. He's saying you work out your salvation. You live out the relationship that you profess to have with the Son of God. And you do that on a daily basis. And Paul is reminding the Christians of their responsibility to humbly, faithfully, obediently live Christ-like lives daily. Is he just talking to the Philippians? No! He's talking to you and me. The same expectations that God has of those first century Christians, ladies and gentlemen, He expects of 21st century Christians. And He expects us to live our lives consciously aware of His holiness and allow Him to live through us daily. Are you living a life that exhibits Jesus Christ to those around you every day? Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, Paul says, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says, look, I'm dead to myself. It's Christ who's living in me. And as you and I work out our salvation, we must understand we must be totally dependent upon the Lord. We must allow Him to have control of our minds. We must allow Him to have control of our emotions and our will. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, It's Him that we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ, whereunto I struggle. Paul says, I strive. Isn't that interesting? Whereunto, Paul says, I struggle, I strive according to the workings of Christ in me. Paul says, I'm consciously having to daily focus on the fact that Jesus is in me. He's, he's working to work out the Christ-like life in me. Let me tell you something. Jesus, if you're truly a Christian, Christ abides in you. And He has one agenda. One agenda. He wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants everything you say to represent Him. He wants every thought that you have to be something that is glorifying to God. He wants everything that you do to be something that points to God. He wants your, your emotions to be such that are pleasing to Him. Listen, He wants to be the Lord of your life. I think about the Great Commission. We all know in Matthew 28... And Jesus has given that great commission. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But listen to what He says, And teaching them 
to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. Do you understand? Jesus is saying, yes, go share the gospel. Go share the, the truth of the gospel. Win converts to Christianity. Make disciples. But listen, don't just give them a pat on the back and give them a certificate and say, you're in the club. Jesus says, you prepare them, you equip them, you teach them the things that I've taught you. You help them to understand that living the Christian life is, is about obeying the teachings of Christ and working out their salvation on a daily basis. True believers live daily with an awareness of the holiness of God and consequently are diligent to avoid any association with sinful activity, relationships, replacing such with righteous thinking or living. You said, oh preacher, you're just being too legalistic. You're being too restrictive. Oh no, I'm not. That's what the Bible teaches. You've been brainwashed. You've been brainwashed by cultural Christianity that says, oh listen, we don't need to live like the old days. These are new modern times. We've got new liberties and we've got new freedoms and the trends are changing. And so we relax the standards a little bit. And so the main thing is that you have some kind of a faith and you know in your heart that you believe. That's the main thing. It really doesn't matter how you live because after all, everybody's doing it. Baloney! That's not what Jesus is saying. He expects all the holiness of you that He expected of His followers in that first century setting. We must, as Paul says, work out our salvation daily. But listen, verse 13 is a paradox. Because in verse 12, he said, you work, you do it, you exhibit it, you live it out, you put it into practice, you work out your salvation. But I declare... In verse 13, if you don't turn around, it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. So you see, we must not only be working out our salvation by our own will, by our own determination, by our own priorities, but you understand that we also daily must submit to the fact that God's divine pleasure is being expressed in us. His purpose is being expressed in us every day. Because God will help you to understand what He wants you to be. God will help you to understand what He wants you to do. God will help you to understand the priorities that He wants you to set in your life. God will help you to know the things that pleases Him. And that's His part. The Apostle Paul reminds the Christians that the Lord works out His will in the life of the obedient believer. Yes, it is a paradox of sanctification. It requires our working, but it also depends upon God working together with us. And then let's look further. In verse 14 and beyond. Paul says, Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may be, become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, I, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says, look, I realize I'm getting to the point where my life is drawing near to its conclusion. Paul goes on to say, look, bring me great joy. Bring me great joy. 
Let your lives be lived in such a way that you are a daily sacrifice. Isn't that what he said in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice unto God. Paul says, let your sacrifice be so pleasing to God that my life is like a drink offering. You see, in the Old Testament period, and during the time of sacrifices, a person would put their meat offering on the offering on the altar and it would burn and become very hot. And then to enhance the offering, they would pour wine on top of the offering. Excuse me. <coughs> and the wine, as it began to dissolve or evaporate, would be a sweet aroma. It was almost like just making a good offering better. And Paul says, that's what I want my life to be. On the, on the offering of your lives, the sacrifices of your lives, let my life let my life be like a drink offering. So what is Paul saying? As we work out our salvation daily, as we live out our Christian faith obediently to the Lord daily, then we also have a responsibility to trust God to work in us. It's us working out our salvation, living out our faith, practicing our faith before others, and in doing so, letting God work through us. But also, he says, consider how others see you. The world around you. Do you complain about being a Christian? Do you moan and groan and run off at the mouth to your secular friends about that? Oh man, got to go to church again. Yeah, my family told me I better be at church. Oh yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I got I to skip happy hour because they just made me a deacon now. Yeah, I, Oh man, this church thing, this Christianity, this is a drudgery. Paul says, uh-uh, uh-uh. He says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the Word of God. In other words, putting forth the Word of God. Paul says, let people see you. As one who's enthused about the salvation that is yours, let people see you as one who's motivated about serving the Lord. Let people see the light of a genuine, authentic Christian faith being lived out in you daily. And when you shine, guess what? That draws people to Jesus. Let me ask you, do you regularly engage in personal a corporate Bible study, a group Bible study? Do you have a regular prayer life where you talk to God and you listen to God and you it's meaningful time with God alone? Do you give faithfully and cheerfully, sacrificially to support the kingdom causes of the Lord? Are you out there serving and using the spiritual gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ to make the church stronger? Are you looking for opportunities to, to tell people about Jesus? Or do you hesitantly do that? Or grudgingly do that? Or when only when you're pressured? Listen, true believers do not have to be hounded to engage in any of the above, but false believers do. And the unsaved world around us can see the difference, dear friend. You tell your co-workers, your schoolmates, your friends. You say to you blue in the face, Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. People aren't dumb. People are not 
done. They see the real thing. And they know the real thing when they see it. Even if they're not believers, they can tell. And all they think was, good gracious, what a hypocrite. I wish he or she would just go ahead and admit the fact that they're not even saved. They're not a Christian. They have the audacity to say that they're Christian and belong to such and such church. And who are they fooling? Listen, if your unsaved, unregenerate friends can see through it, what about God? Who sees every intimate detail of your life and not only knows your actions, but knows your thoughts. Who do you think you're fooling? Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not because we're terrified of God. It's simply because when we look in the Scriptures and we see God for who He really is in His absolute holiness and perfection and purity, and we look at our lives, we begin to sweat and tremble and think, oh my goodness, how can I live my life in a way that would reflect such an awesome and loving and holy, perfect God? This morning, I want to just ask you as, as simply and honestly as I can, are you truly a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ daily working out your salvation? Or are you just a Christian in name only? A poser? A Christian wannabe? That's too important a question to table, to put off to the side. I guess all it takes is preaching funerals like the one I just did a couple of weeks ago. Two young lives snuffed out like that. You talk about something shocking the family, shocking the community. To, to see two very lively, beautiful young girls' lives just instantly, as quick as you can snap your fingers, end. There are a lot of people back up there in the Roxburgh community. I mean a lot of people who are thinking about this question right now. Eternity is too long. Hell is too real. And the wrath of God is absolutely too awful to not know with certainty that you are a follower, a true, genuine follower of Jesus Christ. We're going to have a hymn of commitment properly chosen. I have decided to follow Jesus. And as we sing that together corporately, if you've not made that decision and God is speaking to your heart today, maybe you've given excuses or rationalized why you've chosen not to take that step of faith, and yet God is saying to you, do it today. I love you, He's saying to you. I sent my Son to die for you. I have provided a way for you to have forgiveness of your sins and to have eternal life and a home in heaven. But you've got to admit, believe, and commit to follow after Christ. If you're here today and maybe you made some decision years ago, you went through some motion, signed a card, but deep in your heart you know good and well you're not following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, I would invite you to consider the fact that this may be another chance that God has given you to be the real deal and to experience the truth of God's Word and salvation.